I don't think I've ever had one case which turned on whether there was a tattoo or not about resuscitating or not resuscitating. Well, we'll give you an infusion of uh, acetaminophen, and we'll give you an infusion of lidocaine, and we'll give you an infusion of ketamine, and we'll give you an infusion of what was the fourth thing that he gave, when in fact you could have given four milligrams of morphine, for crying out loud. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, and we have special guest, Carla Reyes, doing Risk Management Monthly, uh, May 2018 issue. Rick, uh, can you believe the weather we're having here in Michigan? Those last bits of snow are drying up. You know, it really is God's country. But go ahead. Tell us about it. Well, obviously, Carlo and I have no sympathy for you. Carlo <laughs> lives here in Southern California. I also got on the line uh, our crack engineer, my son, Richard Elias Bucata, to make yes. sure that we're all copacetic with regarding our wavelengths. You know, it's really a treat to have you with us. I've read your stuff in emergency medicine news for many, many, many years. And uh, uh, you've gotten some uh, interesting, interesting topics that you've covered. And, and some of them quite recently, actually. Rick, haven't we stolen stuff from him, too? Uh, I'm we sure have, we have. We have. Carlo, we steal borrowed, stuff from everybody. Yeah, we, we have borrowed selectively. It's a great honor to have us borrow from people. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure they know that. Yeah, exactly. Carla, we're going to let you run with the ball, and uh, periodically we're going to uh, interject if we think that there's we have anything meaningful to say, which may mean you may be on this for this for the, by yourself for the rest of the, for the rest of the show. <laughs> well, hopefully not. Uh, and and I, I do want to say thank you for for having me on the show. Uh, I've been a long time uh, fan and and student of of. Uh, your uh, tutelage, and it's, it really is truly an honor to be here. Um, uh, I, just to give you a little bit of background about myself, uh, I trained at uh, UCLA in emergency medicine and pediatrics, and then five years after training, I thought, hey, why not go to law school? And um, so I did that, and it really has uh, parlayed into a an interesting risk management niche uh, and the opportunity to write for emergency medicine news and and really just pick whatever it is I want to talk about and what really impacts me because you know what I still practice emergency medicine so it's great to be here. Carlo, uh, you mentioned you did pediatrics, uh, pediatric emergency medicine. I did a combined residency. Uh, mm -hmm. UCLA used to have a combined residency program that was five years in emergency medicine and pediatrics. So, uh, I, uh, survived that five years and, um, uh, uh, yeah. So I used to practice more pediatrics earlier on in my career, but, uh, now I just use my pediatric, uh, training in the emergency department. I'm a liaison to, to the pediatric department in the hospital I work at. Um, I was uh, faculty at UCLA, both in peds and in ER for, for about 12 years. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a nice, uh, kind of dual training for me. And it really kind of lends towards the way I think when I talk about risk management as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's worked out nicely for me. Yeah. You're also he doesn't want to hear your line about how, how uh, children are just little adults. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> He's I'm, heard that no, for many yeah, years. No, don't so go there. Don't, don't, don't go there. Don't instigate him. Come on. Okay. He's a guest. <laughs> you know, you also work at, uh, or, uh, or occasionally down at all of you, aren't you? The, uh, county uh hospital out that's out in your direction yeah yeah so you know uh it, it's 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 always fun uh, tr uh teaching the pediatric and er residents and uh it's 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 a uh, something i've i've always enjoyed doing so yeah i've done that as well um and uh i'm i'm with a, a law firm in oxnard california uh boyish schaefer manieri um, and so I, I, I have, uh, lots of time doing, doing that as well. That, that's kind of a joke. I, I try to split my time with a lot of different things. So, um, yeah, I'm, I keep myself busy. It sounds that way. Well, listen, uh, why don't you choose some topics that you think that are worthy? Now we've been doing this for 11 years and so, or, or thereabouts. So it's, it's unlikely that there will be a topic that we haven't heard, but, um, repetition is the mother of invention or something like that. So yeah. let's, 
<laughs> let's let's go and 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 give Kyle, us your. I, I apologize for him. He mixes his metaphors a lot, but that's okay. So, but uh, go ahead, hit us with take hit us with your best shot. All right, all right. I, I know there's been a lot of talk about the DNR tattoo, and I thought we would just hit that uh, and start talking about it. I. Uh, over the several years I've written for Emergency Medicine News, one of my articles, um, this one was back in December of 2015, was entitled To Code or Not to Code. And so it really talked about um, whether or not physicians really understand uh, advanced care planning and, and uh, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. And so I've been talking about this for some time now. And then we have this uh, case in Florida about DNR tattoos and whether or not to follow them. Um, I'm curious to hear what you, what, what your all thought is on that. And I'm sure that'll provide some interesting uh, insight. Let me give you my background on this, Carlo. Uh, having reviewed cases now for 42 years, uh, over 2,400 cases, I don't think I've ever had one case which turned on whether there was a tattoo or not about resuscitating or not resuscitating. I, I think that it's mostly on the judgment of the doc at that time. I mean, if they've been beating some guy in the field uh, and have gone through the drug box three or four times, they're dead. I, I mean, whether it says, save me, don't save me, please save me, there's only so much you can do, isn't there? No, but but this is actually a different different uh, story here. This is whether somebody who comes in who is unable to speak to you, who is unconscious, whether that is a a, a bona fide um, lawfully valid uh, request. And th this article that was in ASEP Now, which was written by uh, let's see her name, um, uh, Laura. Uh, Vernier, Laura Vernier, who is a, a clinical assistant professor at Drexel in Philly, uh, wrote this uh, piece and made it very clear that you 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 can't be following this for at least four or five reasons that you can't do this. And well, um, well in case you don't, you guys don't remember, about eighty-five percent or ninety percent of tattoos are usually put on when you're drunk and exactly. stupid and going crazy. And so what what makes you think there's any more validity to this tattoo than the one that says uh, his has his girlfriend's name his three three girlfriends ago on the back of his arm although it's kind of interesting the, she relates that the emergency people when they saw the do not resuscitate uh were going to basically not particularly uh, be aggressive about this person however they got a consult from an ethicist. These are directly from God. You know, oh my they have God. a pipeline, right? The God. Here's the here's the right thing to do. And the ethicist concluded that the two could be presumed to represent the patient's authentic preference, and that the law is sometimes not nimble enough to support patient-centered care and respect for the patient's best wishes. So this ethicist is saying this this tattoo is is uh, is is legit. Um, but then again. <laughs> She goes down the list of reasons why it is not, or yeah. why, why you shouldn't do this. It sounds to me like she's a higher quality ethicist involved in this case. Carlos, no, jump in here. She's Stop. just writing about this case. Uh, well, the first point was, Carlos, you might respond here. Tattoos are not legal uh, advanced directives nor post. Absolutely not. There's no way that they can be. Uh, I was actually shocked. Not, I guess shocked is too strong of a word, but I was surprised that the ethics committee said that, well, yeah, you could have followed it. I mean, I think any practicing physician um, would probably take the road of let's do more because we're just not sure what this tattoo really means right. with regards to the patient's preferences. So I totally agree with the, the the doctors that are literally staring at this patient when the patient rolls in. I mean, how can you follow it? So uh, yeah, it was it was uh, interesting that the ethics committee said that. And I, I'm not sure if that had something to do with the way that we interpret documents generally. So, for example, if a patient comes from another state and fills out a post and they have, let's say I'm in California and I have a, 
you know, a Minnesota uh, form that says don't don't do anything, right, or something like that, right? Limited measures, whatever it is that it may say. Um, the general rule is is that that tends to suggest or that gives good evidence as to what their preferences are. It doesn't necessarily mean it's it's entirely enforceable, but but it is something that could be used to guide. Uh, but that is, you know, that shouldn't be the same level of um, certainty uh, as a tattoo, right? I mean, or the tattoo can't be the same level of certainty as another state's document. Well, as an attorney, you know, if that too is, tattoo has also been signed and notarized, <laughs> now that would be a different level of tattoo. But I mean, in case, I'm just going to say, if you live in emergency departments like we do, you see the damnedest tattoos. And more than that, if it's a 24, 25-year-old guy who's got this on his chest and not a 90-year-old who has also uh, proven cancer, I mean, you got to look at the situation here a little bit, folk. Well, you know, there's a a premise in medicine that says when there's any doubt, resuscitate. And later on, if it's determined that, yeah, they really wanted to die and they had the right to die and they were capable and all of that, and all the, they had all the paperwork, well, then somebody can trip on the cord to the respirator and, exactly. and, and deal with it at that time. But the general principle for ER docs is treat, treat. Yeah. Now, the second point she made was informed decision-making cannot be presumed Lots of people have no idea what a DNR means. I didn't know what that I didn't know they, they were going to, you know, help me out here. Number three, she said, the tattoo provides insufficient information to guide medical treatment. Uh, does it mean no chest compression, no intubation, no vasopressors? Advanced directives and pulse clarify preferences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, a pulse form gives, since it is a physician order, it gives a little bit more clarity uh, than an advanced directive with regards to the types of treatment that a patient um, prefers. And let's, you know, just for going back to the basics, Carlo, what does pulse mean? So pulse stands for physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. And almost every state statutorily accepts a form that indicates the type of treatment that a patient prefers after counseling with a physician. So a physician and a patient both sign it. So it's actually an order, a physician order that uh, emergency medical services and physicians across transitions of care should follow. Um, the, the confusion, and, and I reference uh, the Mirarchi studies that have indicated that there is still existing confusion among physicians, including emergency physicians, about how to interpret a pulse and what is the difference between a DNR and a pulse, et cetera. And so uh, I think those studies demonstrate that there is still an information gap about the impact and the utilization of pulse. Uh, she also points out that the end-of-life uh, preferences are dynamic. A person's preference may change based on a large variety of circumstances, and, you know, you could understand that for sure. I changed my mind. <laughs> it, it, it could be, but again, I'm willing to bet there aren't two of these situations a year in the United States where well, you've got somebody who actually is salvageable who has do not resuscitate scrawled on their chest. I mean, it's well, got to be pretty damn rare. You got to acknowledge though, that more and more people are getting tattoos. I mean, I've seen these 40, 50, 60 year old people with tattoos. And when you have tattoos, you've got to show your tattoos. So if they're on your arm and you get the Guinea teas, it's a whole, it's a whole lifestyle here, man. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> it's a, it's all you California raisins who are coming up with this stuff. <laughs> you know, before we, before we carry on this fewer loquende, uh, talking about this stuff, uh, let's. I'm sure there's another subject which uh, Carlo would like to get into. Well, can I do one thing? We got one more point here that she makes. Tattoo regret is common. More than fifty percent. Oh. 
<laughs> later regret their tattoos. You know, Are you kidding? When you put Mar Mary, now it needs to be changed to Joe. You know, yeah, that's, right. kind of, you know that's not easy to change those tattoos it's like that. It's not easy to change, exactly. <laughs> so those are the legal uh, elements uh, that make it very clear that this person, you cannot honor their wishes. Moving on. All right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's a there's a kind of a corollary here, you know, and, you know, kind of continuing on with the Pulse discussion is the idea of the accessibility of a Pulse, because if it's filled out, but it's either not found or if it's not followed, uh, then the question becomes, you know, is there liability there? You know, and there there's actually been some cases that have demonstrated liability when a physician either doesn't follow a post or let's say the healthcare system uh, doesn't reliably uh, store a post so it's not accessible to clinicians. Um, and uh, this, this is actually a, a growing concern as well. Carlo, I, I would love to know, and whenever I'm meeting with other guys who've done thousands of cases, have you ever seen a doc sued for just calling the code and somebody come in and say, oh, no, they wanted to live and you should have done this and all that kind of stuff? It's usually the other direction. You've done too much. You beat the hell out of my mother who wanted to die anyway because you couldn't find the pulse uh, and she didn't want any of this stuff. I mean, if there is a case out there, I think we're talking about rarity here. Yeah, I mean, there. You know, on the one hand, there are uh, wrongful life cases. You know, in the sense of uh, the patient had wished that nothing. Uh, you know, there'd be no uh, intensive treatment, and then something happens, and then you find out that they have an advanced directive or a pulse, and then you find out also that it was basically ignored. Uh, the 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 flip side. Uh, kind of, uh, is, yeah, it's not, it's, I don't see it that, that commonly, but I think that the legal concern and the risk concern is valid on both sides. Carlo, do you have to, uh, bring it with you or how to, where did, where did you keep it in the refrigerator? And how does, how does this process work to have, uh, the healthcare workers know that you have one someplace? So the, the, the initial, thought when uh, Pulse was um, implemented was the idea that it would be a bright pink form. It would be on a refrigerator and uh, emergency medical services would be trained to look for it and they'd bring it in. Uh, but my goodness, we're, we live in 2018 and we have internet and everyone has cell phones. And so now there's a movement towards creating electronic registries on the cloud. So uh, what I think what we'll see is as we get more accessibility uh, with Pulsed uh, uh, in the internet in terms of uh, that type of thing, that will provide a new means by which this important information can be shared when a patient is calling or a patient's family is calling 911 or they're coming in from a skilled nursing facility so that everyone can see the same form uh, in real time. Because there does seem to be the risk that a patient has a pulse, but it just doesn't get brought in uh, with the patient. Uh, it's It got lost someplace. And, and the nice thing about having a tattoo is it comes with you. You know, that was, that was, that was one of the points that <laughs> yeah. they made, you know, you, yeah, you, whether, you, you haven't lost it, you know, yeah, where, did I, put, where did I put that thing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, you can't lose it. You can't lose a tattoo, you know? So, yeah. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think Greg's too, idea, yeah. Greg, I think your idea of you could start a little business, Greg, you yeah. know, get a, a, get the notary thing, get a notary tattoo and a little signature in ink, you know, indelible ink. You're in business, man. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, there's lots of things here. Uh, by the way, the problem with putting it on the cloud is what if the Russians hack our cloud <laughs> And, and declare that everybody is non-resuscitatable, and then they can just invade the country. I mean, be careful here, guys. There, there can be problems. Um, Carlo, before we move on, I got, I've got a question I want. Uh, Diane Birnbaumer wants me to ask, I think, and that is, 
Because Diane asked me, I mentioned a case a few months ago in which one of the pleadings in the case, which had to do about uh, purposeful uh, and deliberate misrepresentation, a nurse, a nurse slash NP slash doctorate in nursing called herself doctor in front of the patient. Uh. And now there's a problem. And the patient now says, and it's in the pleadings in the summons and complaint, the patient misrepresented themselves as a quote unquote doctor. Uh. And the nurse in her deposition, uh, let's say she's got her ego up or whatever, and and uh, said, yes, I do insist that the other people in the department call me doctor. Um what do you think about this? Because to me, the common, common parlance is it's an MD or a DO if you're giving care in a medical setting. You know, there's doctors of pharmacy and there's doctors of histology and all that other sort of thing. But if you're giving care and you call yourself a doctor, is that misrepresentation? You know, it, it certainly feels that way. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not aware of this case, and uh, I guess I should premise everything I say that none of this is legal advice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but well, uh, we we just better shut down right now. Yeah, oh, you know. we've been giving it out for years, guy. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> You're just another name when they do <laughs> us. So that's it. But uh, yeah, certainly, I think that uh, you know. When you're in a treatment setting, a medical setting, and and you say doctor, and, and again, no disrespect to, you know, people that hold doctorates and other degrees, but I think that the importance is really understanding how the patient understands the words, right? So, it's more important if you have to be clear and you have to be more precise in your language to make sure that the patient understands it. Then so be it, but. Again, if you're not precise in the language, then it could cause uh, uh, some misrepresentation. That that's that would be my first uh, gut response. Yeah. You so know, if we're going to give out advice to the people who are listening, uh, the patient should understand everybody's role in the situation. I.e., I am the uh, advanced. Uh, provider, I am the physician, I am the tech, I am the this, that, or another thing, and it should be clear to everyone. Would you agree with that? 100%. I mean, it's kind of like the, the timeout that we're all supposed to be doing before procedures and everyone tells the patient what, what their role is and why they're there. I mean, that's really just informed consent. So anything that impacts the potential for not achieving informed consent would result in potential liability, ultimately. Yeah. Well, this has an uh, opportunity to become a much bigger problem. There are about 225,000 uh, nurse practitioners. And if you want to become an, a nurse practitioner now, you are unlikely to graduate without a doctor of nursing practice. So there's going to be many, many, many more. And in, in addition, there's a move to have already established nurse practitioners go back and get these doctorates of nursing uh, practice. However, to deal with this issue that you've talked about, some states are, are, are making regulations that have the terminology that in essence says you cannot uh, say you're a doctor implying you're a physician in healthcare settings. And I don't know the wording obviously, and the wording would have to be relatively careful but but the fact of the matter is is that this is a real problem, and uh, you can see where it would lead to substantial difficulties, and so it's going to be handled on the state level by saying you just can't do this. Well, I think that this uh, particular plaintiff's attorney, when he when he said, and this is a quote, purposeful, deliberate misrepresentation. I you know what I I, I kind of agree with him on that that. Uh, if uh, this gal has been calling herself Dr. So-and-so and the other people, that's not the common understanding in the public at this moment in time. Oh, well. Moving on. Carlo, do you have another one? Yeah. Um, 
Not uh, this was actually an article I wrote in February of 2013, and it was the it's entitled "The Pain Prescription Epidemic: Are EPs to Blame?" And um, you know, there's you been were, so much. I mean, that's two that's five years ago, and I can't believe been, that you wrote that five years ago. Yeah, <laughs> do you realize I, that you've just hit a a a hot button for both Rick and I? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean. We yell and scream about this at all the EMA courses, everywhere else. But tell us what you said in the article. I hope we agree with it. I hope we do, too. <laughs> well, we I mean. Just, we just cut off his microphone if we don't. But go ahead. Well, I, you know, kind of uh, thinking back, again, it was a long time ago. I, I, I basically said, you know, EPs are not to blame. Um, but we can be a positive influence in terms of, you know, how prescribing, uh, opiate prescribing is done. Um, I do think that the reason why I said that is because EPs, emergency physicians stand in a unique situation in which we don't have that continuity of care. And so I looked at it from a risk, uh, management perspective. If we don't have that continuity, we could be unwittingly, um, continuing a patient's uh, uh, dependence because they're just going to hop from one EP to the next, and hence the need for for some kind of collaboration or something. I know that there are states that have uh, prescription databases, and and I again I've written on that too, and I've gotten a lot of heat for some of the things that I've said. But I, I clearly, I I certainly don't think that we're the blame, but I think that there's a system issue that we need to address. Yeah, that that certainly can be the case. Uh, Rick and I on this program have talked about the new Massachusetts law, uh, the new law in West Virginia prompted by the Tug Valley Pharmacy case, all of these things where there's more pressure coming on the docs to make, Mm -hmm. to give fewer and fewer meds. You know, I, I honestly believe that as I read more literature, the opiate addiction problem there are solutions to this. I think Suboxone has a role. I think that there are there there are other ways that we can deal with this, and we can't just throw up our hands. I think you're right. ER docs have to remember that they're they're a little part of the chain, but they're in there. So do what you can to move these people in other directions and. Uh, uh, one problem is there aren't a lot of pain management specialists in the country right now. Every one of them I know has got a lot of job offers because this is huge. Yeah, we're uh, pretty limited in the emergency department in terms of what we can do with regard to pain management uh, when people are discharged. I'm not concerned really what happens in the emergency department Although it does fry me a little bit when you uh, read an article that says uh, we're the uh, pain, fr- the opiate-free emergency department, uh, I just freak on that one. Uh, uh, I have to give some acknowledgement to Sergey Motov, who I think really, really knows a lot of stuff about pain. But Agreed. I really, think he, I think he was really off base when he kind of talked about. Well, we'll give you an infusion of acetaminophen, uh, and we'll give you an infusion of lidocaine, and we'll give you an infusion of ketamine, and we'll give you an infusion of what was the fourth thing that he gave, uh, and th- you would get these four infusions uh, for your pain in the emergency department, uh, when in fact you're going to give him four milligrams of morphine for crying out loud. You know, it's not. <laughs> it's like it's not that what's going to cause your problem, and even even in the studies that show. Uh, certain people, after they get, get out of the emergency department, six months later, they are much more likely to be on opiates. Well, who are the people prescribing for the six months? It's not us. Right. They, went to some, they went to some doctor, and he kept writing, he kept writing, she kept writing over and over and over. It's like maybe they ought to take a look and say, well, to tell you the truth, I think we ought not do this as long as we're doing it. Or I, I think – we have a teeny, teeny, weeny, weeny bit of the blame. And I also think we're a huge opportunity to be a part of the solution because of, I believe, uh, we, we are the ones who see these patients. They come to us, and I think that some of them are coming in suits. They're not just all shooting up in the, in the back alley kind of thing. 
And uh, there are no programs of any consequence out there to address the idea of treating people who are addicted and treating them in a way that is analogous to treating diabetics who are with insulin. You basically give them, here's a substitute. The substitute will allow you to go to work, raise your kids, make money, da -da -da -da, stop robbing. And it's called buprenorphine. So it's like uh, there have been some really neat programs based in emergency departments getting you quickly into uh, programs where they can initiate suboxone in the emergency department. And, uh, but it's obviously not the only, you know, that's just the beginning, but <laughs> Carlo, the banging you hear in the background is me busting up his soapbox. Uh, <laughs> when I, when I told you that you hit one of our hot button issues, All right. Never you know, mind. we got to let it, we got to let him talk. Right. Roseanne, Roseanne, and Dana. Never uh, yeah. mind. Yeah, whatever. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's move. You, you want to do something else? Uh, or, 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 or did or I just I steal your thunder there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I think that that's pretty much uh, in terms of my initial article again five years ago. I wanted to kind of diffuse the idea that all the ER docs are, are really uh, responsible for this, you know. And then, you know, it's interesting that there's, there's a recent study that is. Um, um, I forgot who wrote it, but it was just recently in that said that uh, opioid prescriptions written from the ER were 23 to 37% less likely to have a dosage higher than the 50 morphine's uh, equivalents compared to right. non-ED prescriptions. So kind of just saying that, you know, we actually prescribe far less than non-emergency physicians. And so I, I hallelujah, I, di I didn't know that uh, I was waiting for a study like this to happen because I think that ER physicians kind of know that, you know what, we're going to treat your pain when you're in the ER because you know what, your your bone is in, a, in the wrong place and I'm more than happy to give you the opiates to make you feel better. But, you know, when it's time to go, you know, we're not, we're not your continuity care doc. We're going to give you a, a, a small amount. And then it's that six months that you mentioned where what's happening there. So, you know, we really need to have maybe some type of coordinated response, which you suggest in which... We have a collaboration with a, uh, you know, a conscientious pain management program or a physician. You know, I think the perfect people as we age, and remember, Carlo, you're talking to two dinosaurs here. Hey, speak for yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but as we age, this is another area like end-of-life care, chronic pain management care, that the the emergency physician maturing their career, this is something to go into. We've seen it all. We know people who have pain. I think this is something that we're not teaching enough about in the residencies. Absolutely. I mean, when you think that you need a pain management specialist, um, that is a area of knowledge that I think, I mean, we're treating pain every day. Why don't we have mm -hmm. more of that specialty uh, under our belt, you know, so that, wow, you bring up a great point. Well, you know, we, we do do a lecture in this year's EMA course where we talk about um, a whole wide variety of uh, supplemental things that people can do, like, um, you know, the injections for the femoral fractures with the um, uh, um, bupivacaine to decrease the amount of analgesics that you would need for a, a hip fracture kind of thing. And the idea of combining ibuprofen and acetaminophen, the idea of uh, uh, heat and cold, the idea of uh, tens units, the idea of uh, you know uh, these trigger point injections, whole variety of kinds of things that we really generally don't even think uh, about doing, but there are others. But I don't really feel comfortable with. Uh, well, here's your handful of, of Tylenol. He said, Doc, I've been sitting out here for four hours. You're going to be a handful of Tylenol? Yeah. Come on. Right. You know, come on. It, and, it, and, and worse yet is the Trimble. Don't do that. Yeah, do Carlo, that. Carlo, I warned you. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to shut up. The, the Roman phrase, uh, furor uh, loquende, fits Rick perfectly. He's on a rage or a terror to speak on this <laughs> issue. Well, listen, and we have let's, to stop him. Let's talk about risk management then. Let's get back okay. to the uh, business in hand here. Well, can I th get Carlo to comment on somebody who wrote to us and see what he has to say? 
Carlo, you spend a lot of your time in an academic program. You speak to residents. We have a letter here. My name is John C. PGY2 in emergency medicine. Was wondering if the risk management panel, which you are a part of today, has recommendations for further reading on risk management outside of podcasts like journals, etc. Was wondering whether risk management uh, uh, monthly panel is able to find, how do they find their cases? How do they do this? Basically, he's looking for a way to keep up on risk management. Now, I was part of the thing in ASEP that uh, turned out three editions of the book, Risk Management and Emergency Medicine. I don't know why they aren't introduced that and keep that in their libraries in the departments. And um, I think there there are plenty of places they can uh, they can get risk management monthly, Rick. Oh, I mean, gee, that, what oh, an idea. What a radical <laughs> idea. And I honestly think somebody in each – uh, department. Maybe it's one person gets it and talks about it at the department meeting when there's a real shift or a real change uh, in policy or dangerous things coming down the road. Uh, an example is the great discussion we had with, with Bob Bitterman about this uh, psychiatric case in South Carolina about uh, them deciding they should have called in a psychiatrist to clear and decide what the ch- what the care should be. This is a big issue. This isn't a small issue. I mean, mm-hmm. every night in the department, you've got 10, 15 site cases that you got to do something with. So w- what do you tell your residents to do to keep up, Carlo? Well, you know, certainly kind of... Uh listening to to you guys and also reading emergency medicine news and risk management columns i mean there's a lot that's out there that will kind of i mean what what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what are the most pressing issues right in risk management so so we try to call those you know kind of identify those issues and so i I think we we're we're doing the job that needs to be done but from the perspective of a residency training program i think there needs there could be a couple of things and and i actually wrote on this a long time ago about how medical school and residency does a really poor job in risk management generally. I think I think emergency medicine probably does one of the best because uh, we are, you know, emergency physicians are risk averse to, be, you know, to begin with. So, but things that you could do from a, a residency perspective is to have a column, for example, like for example, we, we actually publish uh, semi-regularly, some you know whether it's uh, uh, cases or concepts, and and it's distributed among uh, the residents in, in in our program. So it's a means by which the residents can get very active in risk management generally. Um, but again, the other thing that I've always thought that residency programs need and 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 medical schools is actually a more robust risk management program. I think starting while you're in medical school is probably uh, the, the kind of like the A plus way of doing it, but actually incorporating it into resident training would be, re- would be really important. I, uh, I've done over 110 residencies now visits talking to the residents. One of the best I've seen was at the university of Iowa when Hans house came in to run that. He said, risk management, isn't going to be attack on when they present a case they have to talk about the medicine. They have to talk about the disposition. And then they have to talk about the things that can get us in trouble with this case on each and every case. And I think that's fair because it shouldn't be a tack on occasionally done. It ought to be a part of your thought process because when you get out as a practicing doc, 85% of people are discharged home. That's where the lawsuits are. Hundred percent, and uh, yeah. So Hans was uh, actually one of my senior residents, so I uh, haven't seen him in a long time. But wow, definitely, definitely true. Uh, incorporating it into residencies is would be would be such a great thing to do. All right, next topic. 
Next topic. I'm going to do a little, you know, I, I know that this is a hot button, but there is a corollary to this as well. And that was, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on the, the PDMP. I got a lot of heat for an article uh, in which, and this was, this was recent, December 2017. And I was just kind of going over some general ideas. I talked about sepsis a little bit. And I, then my next topic was on opiates and whether or not, um, there is liability if you don't check a cure's data report. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I I want you to review the concept of a per se violation. The fact that if it's a rule and it's out there and you don't do it, are you per se guilty of malpractice at that moment in time? Uh, This is the problem we're having with the sepsis bundle stuff you know, it's written down, and if you don't do it, are you guilty? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you could extend that to almost anything where there's a governmental requirement uh, to meet some need. Although, and, uh, go as ahead. A, as a distinction, the sepsis thing, which we can talk about, is uh, whether you uh, have done all of the elements to to be acknowledged as meeting the uh, guidelines for that care of that patient. That's th- that doesn't relate to if you didn't do it as malpractice. This is suggesting that uh, if you don't follow the law in your state and something happens, uh, what kind of mess are you getting yourself into? Uh, um, because some states require that you look on every patient that you're prescribing and others allow some discretion. Carlo, what do you think? I think it's a risk. I think that's why I wrote the article uh, because, and in, in using the the December 2017 article, those two topics went hand in hand, right? Because you have the sepsis bundle and you have protocols that you're implementing, right? So you're really creating a clinical guideline. Then we could talk about the legal impact of clinical guidelines generally, right? And then looking at opiates, this is not just a clinical guideline. This is a statute. And so I do get concerned about uh, that risk. The purpose, one of the one main purpose of the article was not so much to uh, kind of turn on the siren and be sensationalistic, but it was really a concern that I have is that when you have these laws and you have these guidelines, and let's say that you have uh, doctors that aren't aware of it, let's say they're not aware that they should or they're supposed to, to, to review a cures database, right? Um, then they're, they're unwittingly at risk. They're unwittingly uh, uh, might uh, create uh, risk for them when they practice that way. Um, and I had a really heated response from a, a reader who basically said, why are you saying this? Why are you um, publishing this and letting all the attorneys know that this is actually uh, a way to, to sue docs. And, and, and I replied, you know, there are many attorneys much smarter than me in litigation that already know this. I, it's not, it's not something that I don't think I'm stirring a pot. I actually want to make sure that given these liabilities that we kind of need to know about it as part of our practice. And I still practice emergency medicine. So. Yeah. You know, that, uh, at the New York city hospitals, you cannot give out more than three days worth of an opiate. And what that's done is basically taken emergency docs who maybe this person is going to have pain for five days or six days. The joke is we think all of these people have access to a primary care physician who's going to take care of the situation. And I, I think I think in in the rage to blame somebody for this, mm-hmm. um, emergency docs, you know, you can hear the question line in court. Doctor, did you t- check the state database uh, to see if this person has gotten any other med- medications? Yes or no? Because, for example, in Massachusetts, you must check the state database. Uh, on everybody who gets their 10 Vicodin tablets. I know. Talk about that. Now, that is a clear a clear requirement. You know, fortunately, there are more states in the states where it's not a requirement. Um, we don't that don't have that statute that that adds a, that adds the 
a sense of kind of discretion, which is important, which we always want to keep. But um, yeah, it's it's scary, you know, because I think when you have uh, legislation that tries to tell us how to practice medicine, and in some states they're successful in doing that in certain aspects, I, we have to know that it's there. We because obviously, if you don't, then every time you don't follow a statute, that's a problem. Carl, yes, we, uh, that's we a per se a case, violation. Yeah, we yep. reviewed uh, a a case of. A uh, new doctor coming on who was not, I guess, familiar with the rules and regulations of the uh, hospital or even the community. And they, uh, as a result of that, they didn't do something that they should have done. And the long and short of it was, is that the conclusion of the paper, they suggested that if there are policies that are um, really important that the physicians and other clinicians in the department should sign in writing that I understand that I have gotten and understand the policies. We're talking about policies like going to the um, drug database, uh, child abuse, reporting lapses of consciousness, this whole litany of kinds of things where you would not necessarily intuit them, especially if you're a new doctor coming into that state, you wouldn't know about that. And yet you jeopardize the group substantially and the hospital substantially when you shrug, shrug your shoulders and said, I don't know that. So, and, and I dare say I would be willing to bet a dollar, a dollar that there aren't any groups out there that say, here's the list of the policies that, uh, that you need to know to work in this department, sign here, chick, 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 sign here. So that basically says, we did it. We we were not negligent. We advised them. It, it explains it. They signed here to basically try to shelter themselves from this um, liability when one of their guys screws up on something that was obvious that he should yeah. not have screwed up on. So I'm going to ask you, Carlos, does Las Robles uh, have you guys sign a, a, that, uh, that I'm aware of, of this litany of policies? Oh, I don't even read it. All right, I want my, I want my, I want my dollar. Send yeah. a dollar, you know. <laughs> I just, I just sign whatever. No, I'm just kidding. I, you know, yeah, there's, you know, an onboarding process for any hospital. They make you sign all kinds of stuff, and, um, and that is a concern, right? Because, um, when a new doc, just like you said, here's the scenario, right? Just out of residency, hasn't has no kind of uh, street smarts about practicing medicine or, or getting into a medical staff. And, um, and, and what usually happens, I'm curious to see what, what the, the current experience is, but you know, 15 years when I did this, there was a big, thick packet of bylaws, and I'd signed probably 20 times, and I admit, I didn't read all that stuff. You know, now that I'm on the MEC and I'm kind of administrating the the group and this and that, I I read everything. And now that I'm an attorney, I think I'm charged with having to read everything. And you just, it's, there is a lot of stuff there and it's very kind of glossy. I mean, I think that your suggestion is really itemizing all those different uh, kind of, all the statutes that imply a particular practice uh, requirement. Um, would be good, but I, I don't know if we actually have that. Well, you know, the reason well, I by say the that way, is, go ahead. The reason I say that is I think that that there's papers to sign, and then there's papers to sign. They're not <laughs> all equal of equal weight. Um, and so the idea here is I think that within one or two pages, these policies could be uh, outlined. And uh, it would not be burdensome, and they could be succinctly written. And if you want to find out more about it, go here and here, you know. For but that, uh, it made an awful lot of sense to me that physicians ought to know, as an example, that there is mandatory requirement that you go to this database. I we don't care whether you like it or not. You jeopardize the group if you don't you don't go to it. So we don't want to be any. I didn't know. I'm sorry. I didn't know. Can't can't have that. Yep. I, you know, that's brilliant. I think from a risk management perspective for groups, risk management perspective for hospitals and medical staffs, uh, I, you know, wow, maybe we could push that on, on this level of ASAP as a best practice or the AMA or something. I mean, because that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, 20 years ago when I ran a department, 
in the structured, I was very big on a structured department meeting because most department meetings are a waste of time. <laughs> what, what we did, you know, really, they could become bitch sessions in which people talk about what's wrong. I Every month I had a section where four policies were attached they and were discussed. So at the end of two years, all the departments, policies of the department had been presented again to the docs so that they can't say, well, I didn't even know we had a policy on that. Yeah, yes, but, we do have a policy. Yeah, but the on problem that. is I can't wait two years to find out this policy. I just screwed it up today and you're going to talk about it in two years. Well, yes, but for the new docs coming on, you actually have time where they're taken through the policy manual, but you forget that stuff. Oh, so that's that, well, Rick, I understand it's boring as whale shit is what you're saying. <laughs> but the problem is if we don't do it, I think that's the problem. They can't remember everything, but if they know, right. you know, I think there's something in the book. We had a bomb threat policy. We had a tornado policy. I'm in Michigan. We had a snow emergency policy. So all they got to do is open the book and look at it. Moving on. Uh, we, we, um, for some reason, all right. the time is flying um, here. So I think, Carlo, uh, maybe I have one. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, this article, uh, that I wrote, uh, several years ago was my attempt at trying to identify and demonstrate that electronic medical records and the way they're built um, really don't help us out a lot. You know, first of all, EMRs have such an incredible amount of information, 99% of which are completely irrelevant at the point of care. And it takes forever to find things. And not only that, you also have doctors and nurses on different interfaces. And, and now what happens is that they're not communicating in real life anymore. They're just entering into a document. And, and that just doesn't serve patients well in the ER a lot of times. Uh, and it, it provides uh, risk. And that, that was kind of the intent of the, the article that I wrote back then. Well, no argument here. No, no. I mean, we're the last guys who are going to say we've solved all these problems. And I've watched excellent attorneys take doctors apart on their use of the electronic medical record. Uh, the worst thing is the pre-programmed history and physical, which the machine spits out. And to think that you've actually done all these things. And, you know, the problem with doctors is they're not lawyers. Doctors don't lie well. And so when the attorney <laughs> says, doctor, did you actually ask all those questions? They say, well, maybe not all of them. And then, okay, so how much of the rest of this chart's a lie? Uh, you, you do have to be careful because sometimes too much crap is too much crap. I'm, uh, I'm going to give a talk next week to the EDPMA mentioning the fact that uh, all of this is a billing rouse uh, and scam, and it has nothing to do with the quality of the care. Uh, and since there's huge numbers of billers at this meeting, I'm sure they're going to love me for that. But uh, bottom line is, it's a game, and everybody plays the game. Yeah, definitely agree. I think that it really comes back to documentation then, because um, you know we shouldn't be thinking that an EMR will 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 help us in any way, really. And in particular, because of these templates and and things like that that don't really accurately demonstrate what was actually done or what was actually conveyed to the patient in, in, in the form of uh, uh, informed consent, et cetera. We really need to be better at that documentation. And you, you bring up a really good point. It's really easy. It's really easy to, to walk uh, a defendant in, 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 into a, in a corner, and, and all of a sudden the whole chart is suspect. Yeah. All right, before we uh, get away from this, uh, in the April e uh, 2018 issue, Risk Management Monthly, we talked about sepsis. And, and um, 
Rick's sister, Jerry, who does most of the uh, summarizing and editing work on emergency medicine abstract, sent us an abstract. And we said, all this stuff with the sepsis bundle, who says it works? Well, we've got somebody now who's published a paper who says the amount of good high level, level A proof for anything in the sepsis bundle is essentially non-existent. There was no absolute good and then, you know, sort of level B, that sort of level. No, it's opinion stuff. And yet my big, my big complaint is come a lawsuit. These things are all going to come out and say, doctor, weren't you supposed to do this? We need to, we need to get enough people out there saying, you know what? There's no proof that any of that stuff works. Well, actually, Carlo, this focuses right on the column that you wrote about sepsis. And uh, this article that I have, um, Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, EPUB before being in print, this was February 20th. So this probably hasn't even hit in paper yet. It's from, of, of all places, it's from the National Institute of of health, health. <laughs> they basically are critiquing the, C the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, um, their seps sepsis bundle, uh, and the s performance measures that are associated with it, uh, which require you to perform up to seven interventions per patient to get checked off as completing the, uh, the, the, the bundle. Mm -hmm. And basically, they concluded, period, uh, here's the quote, there appears to be no high or moderate level evidence of a survival benefit underpinning the hemodynamic interventions recommended in SEP1. The authors suggest that hospital accreditation and reimbursement based on adherence to SEP1 may not be warranted. What you're telling me, Rick, is that two federal agencies are <laughs> fighting with each other. We ought to get the FBI involved <laughs> in this and do some sort of big-time investigation. <laughs> yeah, those those of you who, those of you who want to be a pain in the ass at the hospital, get the Annals of Internal Medicine. Go to the uh, articles that are are in the EPUB status, and this is a rock your socks. Just say, look at every one of these uh, seven uh, uh, things that they expect you to do, and say not so fast uh, with regards to their credibility. Greg, uh, did you did you have I anything that you stuff. wanted to do? Yeah, I do. Uh, one of them is I want to shout out to uh, Eva, and I'm not going to use her last name, but uh, uh, Eva just sent me a note, and she's a listener, says, the case that got me started listening to Risk Management Monthly was finally dismissed in summary judgment. Now, this thing has been kicking around for five or six years. It's awful, but it involved a mental health patient and she said she was interested uh, in, in the Bob Bitterman uh, discussion on psychiatric patient dilemmas because she said uh, she has no idea if she got in trouble for what she did, what's going to happen to the rest of emergency docs when this hits the streets. And uh, I really do think this is an issue that ASAP has to take up as sort of a sort of a cause celeb here. We can't have all of our emergency docs calling in uh, psychiatric consults on all of these people. Can't be done. Greg Weeks uh, wrote, uh, thank you. I've been uh, following you and Greg ever since Risk Management Monthly began. Several years ago, uh, one month after an episode that you and Greg talked about with spinal epidural abscesses, I had a 20-year-old male present with back pain it was five in the morning on Sunday. Uh, the uh, physician assistant saw the patient and pre presented him to me. Homeless, back pain, lower extremity weakness, and 100.4 fever. MRI, T4 to T9, spinal epidural abscess. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then he gives another case where he picks up a um, postpartum eclampsia case and uh, gives us a pattern ahead for helping him uh, not missing that one either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know when sometimes you can get advice on the phone when and and just because they call themselves cardiologist, general surgeon, whatever it is, if you don't feel right about 
that particular consultation, you're allowed to say something like, I think you ought to come in. I think we ought to see him together. We ought to do this or that. Because when they're sent home, all those docs say the same thing. If they'd only told me this fact or that fact, I'd have come running right in and we'd have admitted that patient. Uh, sorry, but a lot of our attendings are liars and uh, they, they, they'll fold in a legal case. I, I've seen it way too many times. Carlo. Carlo, here's one for you. Um, this fellow writes, when a patient has been admitted to the hospital service and orders have been written by the admitting hospitalist, but the patient is boarded in the ED, who owns this patient? Are both the ED staff and the hospitalist potentially liable for negligence should an adverse outcome occur in this case? I think that I gave you, I gave you like, that was a volleyball. That was a soft, you know, that was a, that was a, that was a yeah, layup there. Yeah. Now you're, it's your job to spike this one right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I actually wrote, I wrote an article on this. I can't recall which it was actually pretty recent. I think it was in the past four months or so. Um, I think it was on bridge orders, kind of a similar concept. And, and, you know, it's really critical. First of all, for the hospitalist to accept care, that's one thing. And secondly, for the hospitalist to see the patient, that's the next thing. I think once you have that, then I think you're reasonably protected in terms of demonstrating that transfer of care. If you if you put in a bridge order or let's say the hospitalist calls in an order and then they don't see the patient for a little while, it's kind of like the hot potato thing. I, I get a little concerned about that, you know? Um, and the other thing is, is that when you're talking about boarding, um, it, it's so common that the ER nurse will say, you know, I could call the admitting doctor, but you're sitting right here, Dr. Reyes. What do you think about this? So we get kind of pulled in all the time in these cases. Um, uh, but I do think that, one, first of all, they should be the ones to be contacted. But obviously, or, or you know, to me, obviously, if there is an acute situation that's going on in your ER department, you know, my my practice is is to help the patient if there's someone that needs help, whether it's a boarder in the ER or someone on the floor and they're calling me, um, you know, to not act when someone's urgently or emergently having a problem would be kind of a problem, I would think. Yeah, actually, can you envision a jury saying, doctor, you are five feet away when this guy's choking and you're <laughs> calling the, uh, the hospitalist, you know, please. You say, well, the, uh, technically the hospitals had the authority over the patient. They don't give a rat's ass about that. Just right. do the right thing. Just yep. do the right thing. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, then you can always fight it out later. But to act uh, is what, <laughs> what the juries believe we're supposed to do. Non-action is very hard to defend in court. Always be, always be charged with... Uh, with some sort of maybe you did it wrong, but you did something. Yeah, but and listen, I think that's probably good. If Jerry Hoffman were listening to this, which I'm sure he's not, yeah, he's going. He's going to say, "Don't just stand there, do something." No, no, don't just do something. Stand there. That's his I, mantra. Don't do, I do, do something. Stand that. there. Yeah, but Jerry's got to understand. We live in a political world. So sometimes you have to yes. do certain things, and and Jerry uh, Jerry may not like that. Uh, hey, listen, can I congratulate Jerry on how it's been going with regards to his bashing uh, on the uh, New York Times article, where it's kind of like he is a single handedly uh, been villainized over some people not getting their TPA. And uh, the uh, remarkable response that has recurred occurred from people supporting him, <laughs> independently reviewing the literature, saying I came up with the same exact conclusions a jury uh, did. And I think he's done a nice job. There was really a nice interview just uh, a couple of days ago. It's not out there yet by uh, Martha Roberts uh, for Emergency Medicine News, oddly enough, uh, who interviewed Jerry and who Jerry went into the his defense, and that'll be out there when that issue uh, becomes available. I think it's the ne next one. Yeah, the I, I, we've we've all got to get behind him on this. The other thing is the New York Times uh, used inflammatory language 
which should never have been put out there. It was, uh, you know, good, good docs save lives, evil doctors do this and that. Jerry was vilified for sticking to his point. Now, it, that's, that's not a new role for Jerry, but I, thought, I think the New York Times really has to be called uh, into question for the terminology and, uh, they used, the way that the people were quoted. You know what? That's just not right. Uh, Jerry is a smart guy, and uh, he's looked at this data a long time. I understand that reasonable people can view it differently. What you can't start doing is maligning his intent. What Jerry wants is to get to the truth. And sorry, that isn't always clean and neat. But uh, Jerry, uh, I agree. You've, you uh, you took a beating and uh, what's, what's the old line from Timex? He took a, a licking and keeps on ticking. So he's doing it. <laughs> hey, listen, Carlo, uh, We uh, this is kind of the end of the ru- end of the line here and this is where greg gets to uh talk to us about five thousand dollar bottles of wine that he's uh, eating and drinking um the wine of the month segment in fact some of this wine may be from up in uh, las robles you guys are now becoming a wine center of excellence (laughs) yeah that's for mad dog 2020 rick no Uh, no 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 no, no, they, they've growing wine up there. Uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, they are. Yeah. Is there any place in California that doesn't grow wine these Look days? At, I got, I, my backyard. I got some backyard. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Let me just, uh, let me just hit a couple of, uh, ideas. And that is whenever you talk about Australian wines, if it's mid zone wine, everybody quotes and talks about penfolds. You've all had penfolds. You can't have lived this long and not had and drank Australian red wines and not had penfolds. Same way with with uh, white wines. The mass white wine of Australia is something called yellowtail. And if you've ever been to a reception, a a at at any of the medical meetings, this that or another thing, uh, you've had you've had yellowtail. You can't get away from it. Well, now Western Australia uh, in the Margaret uh, River Valley area is coming up with some pretty damn good stuff. And I'm going to recommend one for you. This is Cullen Wines, C-U-L-L-E-N Wines, the 2015 Ephraim Clark Sauvignon Blanc Semillon and... uh, uh, a white wine rated at 94. So all of a sudden, we now have a reasonably priced Western Australian wine, which is worth trying. I recommend it to you. Um, two nights ago, uh, we were fairly sloshed on this stuff, and I can uh, I, I can say it it had very little hangover the next day too, which is always a good thing to note. All right, Gregory, thank you for those uh, words of wisdom. Jeez, uh, <laughs> Louise. And Carlo, thanks so much for uh, coming on with us and, and tolerating this abuse. And uh, and I I do read your column, and I think you have a lot to offer. And uh, hopefully you'll come on again, because I think that uh, this may be an opportunity to present your um, views to uh, another uh, another group of people. Yeah, Carl, I, I would like to uh, reiterate that. And uh, next time, we're gonna, even going to let you talk a little bit. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll not uh, totally occupy your time. So for Carlo and for Rick and myself, Greg Henry, we're saying goodbye for May 2018.